We're going to be in the book of uh, Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. Really what we're going to do is we're going to do more of an overview of the book of Hebrews. And then we're going to lead into Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And we're going to plan this morning to look particularly at verses 19 through 21. I've been studying verses 19 through 25. And maybe these are verses that are familiar to some of you. Um, I, I believe it was Andy who said these were some of the first verses he ever memorized. But as we begin to study this, it's heavier, it's weightier, it's richer than I ever imagined. So we're going to set the scene, we're going to set the context, and then we're going to come back next week and look at some very familiar verses about not neglecting meeting together, but the importance of corporate worship <coughs> together. One of the best-selling books of all time, apart from the Bible, I think it's second now, third after the Bible. Anybody got a guess? Best-selling books of all time. I heard about four of them. The Pilgrim's Progress. And then maybe Harry Potter after that. Actually, I think Harry Potter has transcended against going before the Pilgrim's Progress as of now. The Pilgrim's Progress, I highly encourage you to read this. There's a children's version for it as well called The Dangerous Journey. It's an allegorical tale written by John Bunyan in the 17th century of a man named Christian. Christian travels from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And on his journey, he carries a burden, a little burden on his back which he eventually would lose at the foot of the cross. But he famously travels throughout this allegorical tale of the Christian life, and he comes to places like the Slough of Despond. Do you ever feel like you're living in a Slough of Despond? Does Monday morning ever feel like despondency? I see a few looks. He goes through the Hill of Difficulty. Anyone ever climbed the Hill of Difficulty? Takes many faces. He goes to the Valley of Humiliation and then he comes to that famous square off with his combat with Apollyon. But my favorite scene in the entire story is when he comes to Vanity Fair. And I picture the scene as he walks through Vanity Fair. You ever been to an actual fair before? So we're on the same page. And there's merchandisers on both sides. And they're throwing shiny things out at, him, out at him. They're alluring him and tempting him with a lot of different things. Trying to pull him off the path. Come see this. This will ease your burden. Come look at this. This will give you pleasure. And he's trying to stay focused and not get pulled away. Which he often finds himself leaving his focus. Leaving his, his love. Does not life always feel like this? Like we're walking through a, a, a vanity fair and Satan has a specially designed temptation for every single one of us. How many of you are that guy where you're in a conversation and all it takes is a shiny thing over there and you're over there? Squirrel. This is how we are in the Christian life. It doesn't take a lot to distract us, to pull us off. Uh, to lose our focus. And so the book of Hebrews is written in order to encourage the pilgrim's perseverance through Vanity Fair, through the Hill of Difficulty, 
through the slough of despondency and discouragement, and he's cheering them and rooting them on in light of some true realities. We're going to look. The title of my sermon is Persevering in Our Confession as a Church. The Pilgrim's Perseverance. I want you to notice some things about Hebrews before we get into it. First of all, I want you to notice the structure. The author calls this book, this letter, a word of exhortation. Basically, throughout the entire book of Hebrews, what you have is very carefully crafted theological arguments and expositions. And those expositions, those arguments about who Christ is and what He's done, then lead to persistent exhortations. If this is true, then you need to do this. If the reality is this, the response needs to be this. And so he's encouraging the church toward faithfulness to God through devotion to one another. It's basically like a written sermon in all of its doctrinal richness that leads to this urgent appeal. Brothers, it's like he's getting us by the collar and saying, don't you remember what is true about Christ? You need to persevere. The author is known only to God. And he writes pastorally with this elegant Greek. And he unpacks the theological fulfillment of the Old Testament. You can see throughout the book of Hebrews that he deeply cares for these people. He spent time with them. He knows these people by name. He knows their struggles. He knows where they are in sanctification. And he writes to what's often speculated to be Jewish Christians. They've experienced very severe persecution. Matter of fact, he says that it's been so bad that it's just come shy of bloodshed. And he says that since then, as second generation Christians, they've been tempted toward unbelief. They've been tempted to desert the church. Maybe in their struggle of adversity, maybe in their struggle of persecution, strange teachings have come in. And by this point, they should be mature teachers. He says, you should be chewing on the milk, or, or, or rather on the meat of the word. You should be reaching to the middle and top shelf, but you're still on the bottle. And so they retreated back. They're not growing and pressing forward in the knowledge of the gospel and God's word. And so he's pushing them and pressing them. He basically says that they become spiritually hardened. They don't understand the sufficiency of Christ. And so they're drawn toward apathy. How many of you have ever drawn toward apathy? Maybe you come in this morning and you're just apathetic in your faith. Which means you're without the passion for Christ that you once had. It seems like these brothers have drifted that way. And by the way, isn't that the way we naturally drift? Is toward apathy? Not toward passion. And so they've drifted toward apathy. They've drifted toward immaturity in their faith. They don't understand the deeper truths of the faith. And ultimately, they're being lured back into the world. And it's threatening their own apostasy. They've suffered the shame of ostracism. They lived in a culture somewhat similar to ours, but even more so that's built around honor shame. Everything is about being honored and respected. And they have been ultimately ostracized, cast out because of their beliefs in Christ. It's strange. It's pushed them to the back corners of society. 
And so he's writing at a time when persecution is very strong. And we see throughout Hebrews three central exhortations that I want you to note. Number one, he's saying recognize the fulfilled superiority of the Son. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is saying that Jesus is superior to angels. Jesus is superior to Moses and the priesthood and every other mediator. He's superior to the tabernacle, the sanctuary. He's superior to the entire sacrificial system. Everything that you read in the Old Testament, Jesus is superior to all of those things. And all of those things point to our need for Him. I want you to notice also that the author of Hebrews calls us to rest in the final sacrifice for sin. Rest in the final sacrifice for sin. He teaches us that the high priest of heaven, Jesus Christ, who is Son of God, has provided the final sacrifice for sin through His atoning cross work. And now He teaches us that believers are pleasing in God's presence in Christ. And we rest in that. That what's needed to be done to reconcile us to God has been done through Christ. And nothing is left to do. Not your work, not your sacrifice, not anything else. And then finally, He calls us and He calls them to renew the future steadfastness of saints. In light of those truths about Christ, believers are urged out of complacency. Don't settle. The stakes are higher than you could ever imagine, friends. Don't settle. The reward is greater than you would have ever thought. He calls them out of their potential apostasy. And he sets them, as the early church father Augustine famously said, he sets their sights from the city of man toward the city of God. We live in the city of man. All we see is flesh. We live in a world dominated by sin where our only focus tends to be are on the things that are right in front of us. And the author of Hebrews says that as you live in the city of man, with all of its struggles, with all of its distractions, with all of its responsibilities, brothers, put your faces set before, set beyond the things in front of your faces. As you live in the city of man, set your sights on the city of God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, look around. Look around. No, really, look around. You know what? It won't always be like this. This is very temporary. Very temporary. It won't be like this maybe a few days, maybe a few years, maybe a few decades. What you see when you look around is extremely temporary. And we're to set our sights on what is eternal. The city of God. And we need to constantly be reminded of these truths. He's saying basically, don't throw in the towel. He's saying don't ring the bell. Don't tap out. Don't quit. Endure and persevere and make your calling and election sure and demonstrate that the treasure that we have in God through Christ is greater than even our own lives. Don't just apathetically exist as a knot on the wall. 
but passionately endure like a like a, a, a crown, like a jewel in the crown of Christ. One scholar said, thus, he warns them against laxity or carelessness and their adherence to the son of God against the attractions of the unbelieving world and especially against the yielding to social pressure of the larger society that did not accept Christ. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and let's read the particular passage that we will shoot forward today. Chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Stand with me if you're willing and if you are able. And we're going to read starting in verse 19. And even though we're going to zero in through verse 25, we're going to read through the end of the chapter because this is one central unit in Hebrews. And it's a very transitional passage. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but occurring encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. He goes on and he says this, for, we, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You may be seated. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, is like three links in a golden chain. In verses 19 through 25, he urges these believers to draw near to God. And he gives us the basis for how we can do that. He moves on in verses 26 through 31, and he warns them against repudiating the work of Christ. Against turning their backs when they started so well, turning their backs on their confession. And then he ends and he completes the end of that golden chain and he moves on after his warnings in verse 11. And he gives example after example of faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who have endured at the end with insurmountable odds and adversity. And all of this revolves around the high priesthood of Christ. I want you to see the basis for the pilgrim's perseverance. Number one, which is where we'll spend our time this morning. I want you to see the realization. We have confidence as a church through Christ. And I want you to see what he's doing and what we intend to do throughout Hebrews. Is it's like he's holding a diamond. And he just keeps turning the same diamond and the same truths at various different angles. And he says, think about it this way. And then he turns it again and he says, look at it from this angle. One central truth viewed from various different angles to appreciate the whole and to encourage us to press forward in everyday life. And I want you to see how he does that in verses 19 through 21. Read with me the text again. And then we'll spin this diamond. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, feel the intensity that he's appealing to them with. He says, therefore, so in other words, he's taking everything that he's laid out to this point, especially everything from verses five, chapters 5 through verse 10, about what it means for Christ to be our high priest. And he says, therefore, your life should look different in light of these truths. And so he transitions the entire book. In other words, the response of the Christian is dependent upon the realities of Christ. What we have to remember is that theology and doctrine is not something that's supposed to be stuck, uh, stored away in ivory towers. It's not something that can be dormant. It has implications for the way we view life and the way we live daily life. He says, now that the unfailing favor and enjoyment of our relationship to God is secured through the mediation of Christ, Christ is worthy of our indifference. Look in verse 35. He argues with him again. 
because of their once joyful perseverance. Do you remember how at one point, maybe after you were converted, you would have died in the streets. You were so passionate about Christ. You couldn't be tamed. Your love for Jesus was so strong, you would tell anyone and everyone without shame. Verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Keep your endurance. It has a great reward. And so look in verse 19. He appeals to them as brothers. This is something that he does over and over throughout the book of Hebrews. He's appealing to them as a church together in light of their heavenly calling. Don't fall away. Don't stay immature in your faith. Press forward. And so as he reaches back and he summarizes these great blessings that every Christian needs to realize, he offers us two grace gifts that I want you to know. In a nutshell, we have confidence and we have a great high priest. We have confidence or authorization and we have a great high priest. In other words, we have authorized access to the throne. On one particular mission trip years ago, we got a pretty unique opportunity to visit uh, the UN, the United Nations. And it was because we had a particular connection with one of the missionaries with us. And, and we had to go through a lot of different background checks and get clearance. Because here's the deal. You don't just go into a place like that. You don't just walk up to the door and assume that you're going to be let in. Matter of fact, we were in D.C. a few months ago. And Adam and I walked up to the gates to the White House. The outer gates is about 100 yards from the door. And the reason we stood at the gates was because we didn't have any access to go past. And we could have said, hey, don't you know who we are? I'm Adam. I'm Pastor Adam. I'm Brandon. You know what they would have said? We don't care. We don't know you and we don't care. Because you don't have any credibility and you don't have any clearance cards to go past here. The deal is, you don't have authorized access. And they say on that one particular day that we were there, some fool actually jumped the fence and made a run for the White House. And I think he actually even got in from what I've heard, but it didn't last long. Because he was in a place that he didn't belong, nor did he have credibility and authorization to be in. You don't just assume that you can trample in these places. And if we're not careful, this is how we approach God in worship. We just assume that we have clearance. Do we not, have we not many times, even in our own personal life, become far too casual in our relationship with God? You see, here's where I'm really struggling. I'm just revealing my heart to you. I'm studying this. God's dealing with my own heart, my own repentance. And I'm trying to say, Lord, how can I communicate these truths? But by and large, we swim in a culture to where a lot of times this doesn't even make sense. For him to say, brothers, you have access to the holy places. The mindset in the modern American church is, of course I have access to the holy places. And we assume that we can just come in. When we were in Israel, I'll never forget. We walked up the steps to one particular synagogue. 
And as we climbed the steps to the synagogue, I almost fell and busted my face. And it caused me to do what those steps were designed to do. You know what I did after I tripped? I began to look down. And what I noticed was that the steps were purposely designed to be of different heights and different forms. And I asked our God, I said, why is this? I mean, was he drinking when he designed these steps? And he said, no, it's by design because they wanted to remind you that when you go to meet God in worship, you need to slow down and you need to think about the one to whom you're going to meet. We naturally drift to be far too casual. I want to just illustrate in a very general way what could be one fruit of this. Back in the day of the Reformation, what was recovered in the central life of the church was the preaching of God's Word. You think this pulpit is big? And Ricky, this is a beautiful pulpit. Look at Martin Luther's pulpit. It was about literally 20 times this size, and it was up in the ceiling. It was a statement, Terry, that the preaching of God's Word will be central and everything else will come after that. I'm not trying to press the point. I just want you to think with me for a minute. What does the average pulpit look like in many churches today? Maybe there's a lot of different reasons for this, and we can talk about those things. But the pulpit went from this to oftentimes what you see is a clear music stand that's sitting on the floor. Certainly we want to be relevant. We want to be relational. We want to be with the people. But I would assert that oftentimes in our attempts to do that, we have become far too casual in our worship. There should be joy. Uh, this place should be loud. But casual it should not be. And when we read what he is saying throughout the book of Hebrews, he is saying that you're going to have greater reason to celebrate and be loud and sing those psalms of praises from the psalms when you realize just how big of a deal it really is. I want you to notice the two bases of confidence that we have in our own perseverance. First of all, number one, Christians enter the holy places with blood-bought confidence. Look in your Bibles. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. In other words, confidence refers to boldness. It refers to authorization. It's the ultimate clearance card. It was used in Greek cities of a wise person who would refuse to cringe before the worst tyrant, who would exercise his free right of speech boldly, boldly and even defiantly. It was used even of Jewish prayer. And he's saying that the privilege of believers makes all of those other privileges pale in comparison. What you have to understand is the holy place that's being painted. 
He's referring back to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. You see, the Bible in the Old Testament works like a pop-up book. You ever get those books and you just open it and all of a sudden everything's opened up and there's pictures but no words. You think, yeah, I like those books better. (laughs) That's what the Old Testament is. And all of these pictures are meant to point us to something else. And in the tabernacle was the holy place. And then later in the temple. And it pictured the very dwelling of Yahweh God Almighty. And it represented His untouchable holiness. His unseen glory where no man dared to presume upon such quarters and still live to tell about it. Once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into these quarters. And it was only after a very strict prescribed manner of worship. Ritual cleansing. And even when he went in one day a year, and by the way, can you imagine being that guy? Uh, Marty, I think I may have sinned against you 10 years ago. I'm just going to confess it because I can't remember and I just want to be sure. Like you don't want anything. And they, they would tie a rope with bells to his feet when he went in. You say, why would they tie a rope to him? Because if God struck him dead and he had every right to, do you want to be the guy that goes in after him? I didn't think so. And neither would I. And so he would go into this place which pictured the holy area of God and he would do so with the blood of sacrificial animals that was where the ark rested and he would sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat brothers this is where even angels feared to tread I can't I will never forget being in a class in seminary and we began to talk about worship And we begin to try to define worship. And I remember the professor, and I remember where I was sitting, he said, what do you think worship is? And I remember one pastor in the back raised his hand and he said this. He said, I think worship is this, that we have absolutely no clue who we're dealing with. God is a consuming fire. Sin makes God's presence a frightening reality of wrath that we justly deserve. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. This is why we begin our services with a prayer of confession. And we want to encourage you to confess sin and us in our own lives and teach us how to do that. Because naturally, our consciences are plagued with guilt. Have you ever seen the effects of a guilty conscience? Guilt will drive us to do the most insane of things. A lot of times this world puts labels on illnesses of the mind. Oftentimes, at the the heart of the matter is the plague of a guilty conscience that drives us in directions we never thought we would go. 
It causes us to shy away and to doubt. It causes us to cower in fear. It causes us to insecurity and to do things that we never thought that we would do. I want you to look in Hebrews chapter 9. Here's the picture of the Old Testament tabernacle and the reality that God's trying to paint for us today. He says behind the second curtain was a second section called what? The most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of gold overshadowing the mercy seat. Can you just stop and picture this for a minute? He goes on in verse 7 and he says, Only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But then here's what it points to in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places. He did so with his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And he says that he will come again. And then when he comes again, it won't be to deal with sin. It will be to receive those who long for his appearing. Any man who thinks that on his own, he can be his own representative, his own mediator before God. When we go to a court of law, we take something with us, don't we, Brian? What do we take with us? We take someone who will represent us. Because we dare not go on our own. And we live with friends and family who think that they will represent themselves in the holy places. And any man who thinks that he will be his own mediator and talk his way out of his court date with God will melt like wax before the blazing fury of God's holiness. Naked without Christ. He says that Christ has blazed the way. Look at blood. Look at the means by which we have access to God. Have you ever noticed how powerful blood is? How many of you see blood and your stomach just turns? Nobody? Some people? There's just something about what it represents. There's power there. And it's not so much the actual blood itself that we're referring to. It's what it represents. It represents life. It expiates. It removes guilt. It propitiates, which means it satisfies divine wrath. It cleanses our conscience. It restores fellowship with God. It takes our guilt away. In other words, because of Christ who entered the holy places, we don't have to cower in guilt before God. Friends, when we worship together in just a few moments through singing, we can raise our hands. You don't have to cower in guilt. You don't have to listen to the lies of the enemy who says you have no right. You remember what you did? Because we've taken a bath in His blood. 
And we are invited and urged to come forth. Friends, come into the holy places. Because Christ has blazed the way through. These, friend, these brothers and sisters in Christ with us have been granted what no previous age enjoyed. They crossed the thresholds of the Holy of Holies to stand in God's very presence and encouraged to do so. We can have our consciences cleansed from all guilt. And we can stand accepted in Christ in the holy places of God. Amen. We're boundary crossers. He says by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. When he says through his flesh. In one sense, we might understand that as that curtain separated God and man. And at one point, that's where God and man would meet. But at that curtain in the Holy of Holies that separated the picture of the very presence of God to which no man would proceed farther. There was a barrier. And that's where God and man would meet and yet go no further. But what happened through the death of Christ, that curtain was ripped. Because the great high priest ushered forth boldly into the presence of God. And now the Bible teaches that in light of our great high priest, we are all priests before God. We don't go to another mediator. We don't need someone else. Christ represents us in the holy places of heaven. He opened the way through His torn and bloody body. We don't live in fear. We don't live in dread or doubt or discouragement or rejection. There's no need for insecurity. He has ripped the curtain from top to bottom. And this is huge for Reformation Baptist Church. Martin Luther gave us a gift. And one of the gifts that he gave us is called the priesthood of the believer. And what that means is that we are all priests to God. We are welcomed in to his behalf. We don't need someone else to go before us and do that for us. Our hope goes beyond the curtain. The dead end is now a living entry. And I want you to notice finally in verse 21. The church has a high priest in the final fulfillment of Christ. Hebrews 8.1 says, A high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I love how our London Baptist Confession puts this. And if you have the sermon notes... Or, or if you have a copy of the confession, in chapter 8, they summarize beautifully. The writer said this, God was pleased in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose Him to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. 
They go on in the second part and say this person is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and humanity. In section four, the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office to discharge it. He was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserve. He also ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding and he will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. Do you know what this means, friends? If Christ is our mediator, Christ is interceding for us. Dad and I were talking last night just about the implications of this. And he said something that just really lodged in my heart. I said, what does it mean for you that Christ is your high priest as you work for Frito-Lay and you deliver chips? And he said this, given the filth that we live in, there is no price that I can put on the peace of mind that Christ is interceding for me. And wherever we find ourselves and whatever circumstances we find ourselves, Christ is interceding for us. And God is doing what is very best for us. As we live for His glory. And He works all things for our good. I want you to see the truth of this as Christ being a high priest over the house of God. I want you to turn to one other passage. I want you to turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And I want you to see what this means, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church. In Hebrews chapter 2, we begin to see a running theme. In verse 11, for he sanctifies, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And he says this, therefore, since we all share the same father, certainly us in a different sense than Christ. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Friends, Christ is our elder brother. Do you get how huge this is? In verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, us, in every, every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or to satisfy God's wrath toward us for the sins of the people. Look in chapter three. In chapter three, he unpacks this more about us being God's house. In verse five. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. Look up here. Do you remember the Old Testament pictures that point to greater realities? If you're with me, just do this. Now he's looking back at the Old Testament picture and he's saying here's a greater reality. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Verse 6, but here's the reality. Here's what everything points to. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And you wouldn't believe this unless I told you straight from the Bible. We are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence 
and our boasting in our hope. We are God's house, no longer a temple, no longer an off-limits tabernacle. God dwells in us. God dwells in you. You're an image bearer with the Spirit of God living in you. And when we come together to worship, brothers and sisters, God is here. God dwells in us. We represent Him and He represents us in Christ. This is the dwelling place of God. And we represent His presence before the Lord, uh, before the world. Do you ever study the Bible and you just see something that you never thought and you thought, man, this changes everything. I was recently studying Matthew 16 and Peter confesses Christ as the son of the living God. But then in 1 Timothy 3, you see that the church is the household of the living God. And the rest of the New Testament unpacks what we're going to see in Ephesians 2 when we get back to Ephesians. That believers are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 1 Peter chapter 2. Every time I say 1 Peter, I'm thinking Scott's listening somewhere. 1 Peter chapter 2 says that we're being built into living stones as a spiritual house into a spiritual temple, a holy priesthood of God. This changes how we relate to one another. Our house is a household administered and cared for by Christ. Therefore, we must protect this house. And we must represent the glory of Christ to the world well through it. I want you to look, since we have time, at one other passage. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we see a very similar call to what we see in Hebrews chapter 10. And everything we see here is what everything else that we've said drives forward, drives toward. He says this in light of everything I just told you in the last 40 minutes. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without Sin. Every weakness, he understands it. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. The Christian is never alone. And the Christian never struggles by himself. Because we have a great high priest who sympathizes with every weakness. And we make up the global and local household of God with other spirit-indwelling brothers and sisters. And so in Hebrews 4, he transitions and he presents Jesus as high priest. 
In Hebrews 10, he transitions to the implications of Jesus as high priest. And he says, as a result of these things, let us draw near. Don't shrink back. Don't, don't settle. Don't be complacent and apathetic. Don't cower in fear. Don't let insecurity rule your life. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with hearts sprinkled and made clean. Don't let a guilty conscience rule your life. And hold fast to our confession that we once made and that is we made as a church. And let us consider how to stir one another up and encourage one another. Don't get in a lackadaisical neglect of meeting together. You need to keep meeting together because God is honored in what we do and we're encouraged through it. And there's a stake in eternity because of it. So he says, seize the opportunity to access God. And we're going to look next week at just what is at stake in our meeting together. Draw near to Christ. Hold fast to our confession. And unite together as a church. And all the more as we see the day of judgment and the day of salvation and the day of the returning Christ drawing near. This should put all of our priorities in perspective. Father, we love you. And we dare... We dare not barge into your presence naked without Christ. But Father, we thank you that because of the blood of Jesus, which cleanses our guilt and our sin, that you urge us to draw near with confidence, even boldness in your presence. What no man of pride prior times would ever, ever dare to do. And we thank you for our high priest interceding for us, interceding for us as we work and carry on business, as we do laundry, as we do yard work, as we meet together as a church, interceding for us. Lord, help us to seize the opportunity to draw near to you. Lord, help us to seize the opportunity not to neglect living in covenant community with one another, meeting together, but encouraging one another all the more, knowing that the day of judgment and salvation is at hand and could be here at any time. Father, I pray this morning as we prepare to hear your word, to sing, that you would help us to draw near with hearts that are glad, that delight in Christ like nothing else. And hearts that take great joy in our great high priest. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.